I ask uh, briefly if you are here and you go to the master class in Pathway Kids. Are there any master class students here today? Yeah, there are a few. I can see some hands. Do you know what? I was walking yesterday up at uh, Lake McKenzie with one of the students from our master class and uh, they asked me, what are we doing in church today? And I said, today... Um, what are you called in masterclass, Mrs. Jess? Mrs. Jess? Jess? Just Jess. Okay. I said Jess is going to share with us today some of the stuff that she's been teaching you in masterclass throughout the year, which has a lot to do, and I won't say more because Jess is going to take us to that, uh, the story of the whole Bible. And this student's eyes just lit up and said, oh, yeah, we do that. And it's so cool. And, you know, we had a cool conversation about that. We take kids very seriously, kids we take you very seriously, and on occasion we'd love to be taught ourselves what you are being taught when we send you out every week. And today's one of those days. We've asked one of our teachers, one of our Pathway Kids teachers, uh, whom we are blessed to have among many, to just offer us some insight and a lesson of what our kids learn in Masterclass in Pathway Kids in that back room every Sunday faithfully during school terms. So, Jess is going to do that. I'm just prefacing it to say this is what we're doing today. And before we're doing that, one of the students will read the Bible to us, just four verses. And then, Jess, you are welcome to lead us. Thank you. Anna's going to read to us. All right, Anna. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the heavens, the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. Now. now the earth? earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Thank you, Anna. Those were the very first words and the very last words of the Bible that Anna read to us. All right. Thank you, Jess. Ryan's not doing his bit, no. (laughs) All right. Yes, so good morning. Yeah, it's a privilege to be up here talking to you and I'm really thankful for that. Um, And what you guys get is an opportunity to experience some of Pathway Kids, to experience some of Masterclass. 
Um, now, and as Bible reading alluded to what our masterclass will be on, and it's the whole Bible, kind of. This gets me excited. Um, you'd, I'd say in my late teens, I got this epiphany. Oh, the whole Bible's this one big story. It's all about Jesus. It's this story about Jesus. I had grown up like many of us had and like uh, many of the kids do out the back, um, hearing all these Bible stories. But it wasn't until later that they fitted together and I could see the thread of Christ weaving, weaving through the entire story. And since then, or and now, I just love learning and growing in my understanding. I love discussing and experiencing and teaching, like in Pathway Kids, the whole Bible story and seeing Christ in all of Scripture. So, a few points first up to cover off. The Bible is big, you've probably noticed. So, buckle in, bear with me. This is going to take a little bit. That said, this will be very much a simplified overview. There is so much to know. And as there is always so much to know, especially when it comes to God. Many of you do know this and know this well, but it is great to get together and have the opportunity to go through this together. Now, lately, um, a lot of what I'm getting into this sort of topic, a lot of the info I've gotten is from this guy, an author and teacher, Graham Goldsworthy. Um, he is an Australian. He's lectured at Moore Theological College in Sydney. And he writes books. This is a trilogy. There's plenty of this sort of stuff that he's done. Um, and another person that sort of consolidated some of my knowledge lately is Nancy Guthrie. She's an American. She's a writer, a teacher, and has spent years looking into this way of seeing the Bible. So there's a wealth of information out there, many others too. Now, when I get to the parts of the story, well, guess where I got most of that from? This book. I got it from the Bible, obviously. So I've been really looking at this book, but especially the NIV Study Bible. I love my study Bible. <laughs> All right, so that said, let's get into it. The Bible is God's record of God's own dealings with the world and with people. And he does so with a unity of purpose. The Bible, as you know, is a collection of different types of literature. There's historical, narrative, prophecy, letters, law, apocalyptic it's written by some 40 authors and it's done so over centuries. And all this comes together to form a pattern that relates to the purposes of God. It's purposeful writing and the purpose which governs the events is God's purpose and God's purpose is Jesus. The divine purpose behind it all means the Bible comes together as a unified whole it's a whole big story. So we need to understand the Bible in this way, an unfolding big story that reveals God's purpose. And if we miss seeing the Bible this way, we miss the point of the whole Bible and we can miss the points of the parts as well. 
This is something that you can spend hundreds of years diving into and never exhaust. The word of God is worthy of spending our whole lives seeing how it fits together. And as we look for Jesus in all of the Bible, we see him through all these different ways and all these different angles and we love him more. So let's do that. Let's get into Masterclass and tell the whole story with Jesus the whole way through. And hopefully you'll see what I mean. So yes, our first stop is going to work. Genesis. In the beginning was God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God created everything, created people in his image and in his likeness with the potential for perfection. He placed them in a garden, Eden, right by his side. Free to love him, therefore also not love him. People chose not to love God, wanted their own way and doubted God's love. This choice, along with the influence of Satan, sin entered the world. Death, brokenness and judgment with it. God will now spend the rest of the story showing the depth of his faithful love, the glory of his way, not ours, and the plan to restore and redeem the brokenness and bring back life. The way in which he would do this is Jesus. In the meantime, there's sin and judgment. There's loss of access to the garden. We are now separated from God, only to be restored through Jesus. Generations follow, and the they are greatly impacted by this brokenness. Somewhere during this time, we have... Oh, I went the wrong way. Job. That's where the story of Job fits in. But back to Genesis. And our first big stop-off for today is Abraham. This is where God really gets in and, brings this, and begins this redemptive process. It's a promise of God's people under God's rule in God's place, the kingdom of God. And through this, God would bless the world. The way he, do, he starts to do this is through a covenant that God makes with Abraham. God will be the God of Abraham and his descendants, that's God's people. They are to be people of God, faithful to God, God's rule. He will then set them up in the promised land. Abraham was given by God the land known as Canaan. This is God's place. This covenant is unconditional. God would make it happen no matter what. And through Jesus. The people, though, are called to love him back and be faithful to his rule. But again, like the garden, they would choose over and over and over not to. So love for God and faithfulness to the rule of God would also have to be done by God himself, by Jesus. Abraham has a son Isaac and Isaac Jacob and Jacob has 12 sons. And these 
Um, and these 12 sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel is the name given to Jacob when God renews the covenant with him. This growing family then end up in Egypt, away from the promised land. And Genesis ends with the beginning of 12 tribes. To point out those tribes, just a few things. This dude, this son Joseph is blessed by God. He ends up with um, the, a double blessing, the um, blessing of the firstborn. So instead of a tribe of Joseph, we get that his two sons, we get Ephraim and Manasseh. And then the other brothers are um, tribes, except for the one in red there, Levi. Levi has a different role to play, not as a tribe. And then the other important things to note is Judah. Um, and Judah, the tribe of Judah, gives us Jesus. So that one, keep an eye on. All right, so we pick the story up in Exodus. And it's been about... I've lost my, my exodus. Hang on. Oh, there it is. And it's been about 430 years. And the people have been away from the promised land in this time um, in Egypt. They've grown dramatically to what seems to what they think is 2 million people. Yet they're oppressed. Um, they're slaves to Egypt. And it is only through mighty acts of God under the leadership of Moses that they are released and rescued from Egypt. What follows is the exodus, the journey back to the promised land. They stop off at Mount Sinai. And that's where Leviticus comes into its own. In this book, we read that the people become a nation representation of God's kingdom. The covenant is renewed. God would be, the God, be their God if they were to act as his people. How? How to act as his people? Well, firstly, they're given the law, his rule. The people, though, would break this and Jesus would have to keep this perfectly instead. Therefore, the breaking of the law in the meantime, they would have to use the blood of animal sacrifice to symbolise payment for breaking the law, for sin. And though animal sacrifice is given repeatedly, this would not be sufficient. Jesus would have to do this too. Be the once perfect, complete blood sacrifice for sin and brokenness. They were also given worship as a means to live all of life as God's people. This was centred around a dwelling, a dwelling place for God. First the tabernacle and then later the temple. Priests and others from the tribe of Levi are to act as special representation. People set apart in service to God. This was all a call to holy living. The people would not be able to do this either. Jesus would come to be God himself dwelling with us. He would be our high priest, our holy representation, and through him perfect, complete, glorious worship would come. Numbers, the book starts at Mount Sinai. The people are set up as a nation, God's people under God's rule, all that's left is God's place. And they head off towards the promised land, but this doesn't go so well. 
They refuse to undertake the conquest of Canaan. They choose to not act under God's rule and not do it his way. And what follows is wandering and war in the desert for the next nearly 40 years until the next generation come along. We meet this next generation in Deuteronomy on the edge of the promised land. This new generation are preparing to enter the land, to be kingdom people in the promised land. Leadership moves from Moses to Joshua and they renew the covenant. Joshua, we hear and read of this conquest, the fulfillment, the promise is finally a reality. The people of God are established in the land and there's rest. There's tribal allotment. So and division, so all the colours of the 12 tribes um, and how they're spread out as God intended. They were given certain parts of the land. Um, we've, got, um, we've got Judah down the bottom here. Manasseh gets half on either side of the river um, and they've all got their areas. I don't know why some get... No, actually, there's lots of reasons why some get more than others, but that's another story. All right, so they're all set up and now the covenant is renewed as Joshua the book of Joshua is completed. It's looking pretty good until this book. Judges shows us that the conquest is not complete. Many pagan nations and people remain. Thus, rest is not secure. Jesus is the only truly righteous deliver that deliverer that would completely conquer all evil and bring eternal rest. So judges, we see this cycle of sin and it's just getting worse and spiralling down. It's really only God's mercy that keeps Israel together at this time and from not being absorbed into the pagan nations around them. God is covenant faithful. There is though this beautiful picture of redemption in the story of Ruth during the time of the judges before we get into the book of Samuel. In Samuel, we begin the next part of the kingdom plan. A hugely significant priest in Samuel is we meet. And then after a bit of a detour, the people wanting to do things their way, God sets a king over the people. God's choice? David from the, tri from the tribe of Judah. God is with David. And under David, the 12 tribes unite as a kingdom and the city of Jerusalem is conquered and set up as the royal capital. Jerusalem is at the top of the purple around there. Um, and the enemies are defeated, establishing the land. David receives the covenant from God as well. Through the line of David, there would be a forever king on a forever throne. So David... Chosen by God, under covenant, yet far from perfect. Jesus, again, our only perfect king and the forever king of the covenant. Kings comes next and it's that, the history of kingship. And yet it is the history of kingship in light of the covenant. We see the covenant play out in the book of Kings. David's son Solomon becomes king. 
The kingdom flourishes, it's greatly influential, there's wealth and splendour. The temple is built during this time. We see the covenants are coming to completion. This is a truly climactic point in the story. It nearly seems like it's all going to happen, that the promises will be fulfilled. Then things start to unravel. Solomon's not fully devoted to God and does evil in the eyes of the Lord. He breaks the covenant. God will tear the kingdom apart and give it to another. Yet for the sake of David and for the sake of Jerusalem, not the whole kingdom will be taken. Again, we see the need for Jesus, the one true king, and through him um, will be an established, glorious, flourishing forever kingdom. And now it's in the courts of the kings, mostly David and Solomon, that some of the following Bible books have their origin. And they're the books of Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. But back to kings. And now we have a divided kingdom. So we've got the north, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, it's called, because it's made up of ten tribes. So pretty much everything from the purple up, both sides of the river, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Um, Ten tribes, and their kingdom lasts for about 210 years. There are 20 rulers during this time, and they are of nine different dynasties. Things begin with the first king, Jeroboam, who, along with all the kings of the northern kingdom, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They didn't have access to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem, and they make golden calves to worship and many other idols. Evil hits a whole new level with a guy named, or a king named Ahab, and he doesn't at all respond to the faithful ministry of Elijah and Elisha. God sends the prophets Jonah and Amos to the northern kingdom, and later Hosea. And Hosea is sent during the final days of the kingdom. Hosea prophesies during the reign of the last six kings. They don't reign for long, let me tell you. Um, It's a time marked in bloodshed. Israel, the northern kingdom, is by then is this tiny nation. It's it's threatened by the Assyrian Empire. And after a three-year siege... The capital city, Samaria, is defeated by Assyria. And then the people are exiled to distant places in the Assyrian Empire and others are brought in to resettle Samaria. The prophets, Hosea, during this time, continue to tell the people that despite their idolatry, God still loves them and is faithful and will be faithful to the covenant. God will not let the people go. Now, the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom's two tribes. We've got Judah in the purple, and therefore this second tribe being Simeon. So down the bottom there. Um, Now, this also, the kingdom, which will run for about 345 years, so a bit longer, 
in the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and it will have 20 rulers as well, descendants of David. So in contrast especially, this is impressive divine devotion to the dynasty of David. Things begin with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, like a number of the others that follow. Yet there are others that do right in the eyes of the Lord, though never without sin. At some point, the prophets Joel and Obadiah bring messages to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, the first significant faithful king is Hezekiah. And under him, reform and covenant renewal occur. He reigns during the fall of the northern kingdom. He watches Assyria take the north. And Assyria move to threaten Judah. And also at this time, Babylon are growing in power. Babylon would later actually defeat Assyria and come for Judah. Micah prophesies at the time of Hezekiah along with the prophet Isaiah. Josiah, a later king, is another significant king of Judah who does right in the eyes of the Lord and he brings reform and covenant renewal as well. Yet despite Josiah's faithfulness, exile is now imminent. Judah is destined for judgment. Four kings follow Josiah over the next 20 or so years As things progress, Judah becomes subject to Babylon and the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. Three times, groups are taken and exiled to Babylon. One of the kings is among those exiled, and we find out later that he is released in Babylon. And therefore, that hope's there, that hope for the line of David, it remains. The third and last exile happens after Babylon attack. They attack Jerusalem and the temple. They ransack it. They burn it. The officials are executed. Treasures are carried off. And Judah ceases to be an independent nation. Nahum and and Zephaniah. Uh, prophesy during the reign of Josiah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah while Josiah is on the throne and the kings that follow. And they see the fall of the southern kingdom. Jeremiah's ministry was significant and difficult. His message though, God was about to inflict on his people the covenant curse. Seventy years of exile. Judgment. The Israelites were to submit to God's will in this. Yet, covenant faithfulness would triumph. A remnant would be restored and renewed. God would honour the covenant promise. And a new covenant was made, an unconditional covenant of grace to forgive sins and bring a new relationship between God and people. This is Jesus. Jesus is coming. The plan promised at the beginning is still underway. Jeremiah goes on to respond to the exile in the book of Lamentations. 
And it's important to note that throughout all these prophets and their messengers, we see that God is a God of the nations, of the world. Israel does have a unique but not, in, not exclusive claim on God. Nearly half of the prophets include messages to or about other nations. The other nations are still on the table, faithfully loved. Ezekiel and Daniel are such prophets, and they are also prophets and people that are exiled, and so they prophesy to the people while they are in Babylon. Now, the Babylon, the Babylonian sorry, empire is overthrown by Persia, and Cyprus becomes king. And as prophesied hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah, allows the people to return to Judah and Jerusalem. Before all of them return, though, the Israelites experience a great deliverance during a later Persian king, and we read about this in the book of Esther. The story goes on to see God's covenant people restored from exile, including the descendants of the line of David back to the promised land. The books of Chronicles fit here. And why? Because they're written to the restored community. And the community, the people are asking after exile and while still under Persian power, not independent yet, is God still for us? Do the covenants still apply? Will the promises be kept? Chronicles answers by looking back. The story gets retold in these books. The faithful hand of God is clearly seen working out his good and glorious way. Jesus is still coming. Ezra and Nehemiah give the, narr the narrative of the restored community. All Israel was repatriated through a representative remnant. The temples rebuilt and service revived. The laws re-established. Jerusalem was reconstructed and inhabited. The covenant was renewed and reform was made towards holiness. God made it happen against fierce opposition. Yet, they are still a wayward people awaiting the new covenant and renewal through the Spirit. Three prophets have messages at this time. Haggai, Zechariah and, finishing the Old Testament, Malachi. The Old Testament finishes with us waiting for Jesus, looking for the brokenness that began in Eden to be restored. The only hope is now, or definitely has always been, faithful covenant-keeping God. The only way, his glorious plan. The answer comes in the New Testament, but not for 400 years. The restoration plan stands still while history ticks along. The Persians are overthrown by the Greeks, the Greeks by the Romans, and it is why God's people are under Roman rule that Jesus comes. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, give us four accounts of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the Son of God. He's here. 
and he is the promised Messiah, the covenant keeper, the redeemer, the restorer, the deliverer, the true high priest and the perfect forever king. Jesus is born of the line of David through the power of the Holy Spirit and he brings the kingdom of God to earth. He fulfills the law and the Old Testament prophecies and he gathers and teaches disciples. Then we have the biggest climax in the whole story, in the whole world. Jesus, as planned from the very beginning, will show the depth of his faithful love and the glory of his way. He will restore and redeem the brokenness and bring back life. How? Jesus is murdered on a cross, taking on the sins of the world, though perfectly innocent. He's separated from God, from his, from his very self, as wrath is poured out and judgment is served on one for all. Blood is shed for the complete payment of sin. The biggest problem of all is dealt with our greatest need met, brokenness restored. Jesus is then taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb. Yet on the third day, he proves victorious over death and comes back to life. All this opens the doors to restoration, redemption and eternal rest with God. The kingdom of God can now truly begin to be established and life has the upper hand. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, just a little while later in the story, God can dwell with us and we can already, though not fully, until Christ comes again, be restored to perfect relationship. The very last part of Jesus' time on earth is told to us at the beginning of the book of Acts. Jesus ascends to heaven to wait for the final instalment of the story. But we're not alone. Pentecost brings the Holy Spirit, God with us. The book of Acts then tells us how this changes everything. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, as a result of the risen Lord Jesus, the church, God's kingdom, his people under his rule in his place, pour into the world. Acts 1.8 is key to how the church begins and grows and spreads. The verse reads, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see that here. What follows is just that the disciples, those that followed Jesus while he was alive and so many others through the power of God, first minister in Jerusalem, and that we can see in the first few chapters of Acts. And then they move out further to Judea, and that's representative of the southern kingdom. And then they move out further, and the next chapters in Acts tell us more about the story. They've moved out to Samaria, and that's representative of the southern kingdom. No, the northern kingdom. So we're restoring what was lost, and then they head to the rest of the world to the world as we keep readings more into Acts. And we see how the covenant 
is kept and it's blessing the world. During this time, as this happens, as the book progresses, there are also letters being written to the church and to the people of the church. Their message is Jesus. Their message is the gospel. And they encourage, they instruct and they correct. And the earliest of these letters, it's believed to be, in the wrong one, believed to be, is James. That's probably our first letter that was written. And these are followed by Paul's letters to the churches. We have the letter to, of Galatians. Then we have two Thess- 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We have 1 and 2 Corinthians. We have Romans. We have Ephesians, Colossians, a letter to a guy named Philemon, and Philippians. Paul also writes a couple of letters to a guy named Timothy and one to a guy named Titus. Other letters are also written. We have the letter to the Hebrews. Peter does a couple. John does three. And Jude. And then we have Revelation. This is most most likely the last book written. Written at the end of the first century. This book is apocalyptic. It's highly symbolic. Yet its main message is that of salvation Encouragement and warning. Its main message is the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. The already redeemed by Jesus will be perfectly so. Eternal life in blessed rest will be forever restored. Jesus is coming soon. All will be made new. He's coming back. And that's the end of the story or really just the beginning. As we look at this whole big story, acknowledging the revelation of God from the beginning, it enables us to understand how it progresses and unfolds forward, to give and reveal Jesus, and therefore to apply to us today. When we see the Bible as one unified, purposeful story of God, as God intended, we see Jesus at the centre of all of Scripture. The whole big story centred on Christ. The more we see the whole story as showing Jesus, the more we get clarity on who Jesus is and what he's done, the more glorious it all becomes, the more we see the great depth of love he has for us and the more we appreciate and adore Jesus. This way, we'll never stop finding new ways and reasons to love Jesus more when we read, study, experience, fellowship in the word. We see the immense effects Jesus' life and death and resurrection have, the immense effects it has on us, on our lives today. It's not what we need to do. It's what Christ has done. The more God, through seeing his glorious story, the way he purposed it, with Jesus blazing through, makes all the difference today, right here, in our lives, now, and absolutely eternally. Let's pray. 
What a story. What a, a God. We praise you. We thank you for planning to fix the brokenness from the very beginning. For restoring and redeeming us for life and rest that you bring. This is your story, Lord. Yet all praise to you as through Jesus it becomes our story, our forever story. We ask that it, your word, empowers our lives. We ask that the story of the Holy Spirit-powered, the risen Christ-enabled church unifies and grows strong pathway. Help us to continue the call from the beginning to be your people under your rule, in your place, and through this, the kingdom of God, bringing blessing and hope to the world. Amen.